I want to take a break from the podcast right now and I want to give you a gift. I don't want to do that to thank you for being a listener. I put my heart and soul into this podcast. I love interviewing today's experts, researchers, MDs, psychologists, sleep trainers, you name it. I just, I hope you feel inspired to take care of yourselves and your families. And I just want to thank you for, for being a listener and hanging out with me. So the code podcast10 is going to give you a one-time $10 off code at kellylevesque.com, your next order of protein powder. You can either use that on my grass-fed beef isolate protein or on my new vegan chocho bean protein. Now, here's what I love about my protein powders. It's three ingredients or less. So we don't use fillers, emulsifiers, no fortified vitamins or minerals. It's easy to digest and naturally made without any enzymes or chemicals like hexane. So it's three ingredients. With my grass-fed beef isolate, that's 100% grass-fed beef, and it's made in the way that you would make bone broth. So just heat and water. And we dehydrate it, that end product to get that collagen-rich protein powder that your whole family can drink. It can be added to coffees, to smoothies, and you can get it in vanilla, chocolate, and unflavored. I wanna point out that my vanilla and chocolate is made with organic vanilla bean, organic cacao, and the only sweetener used is organic monk fruit. We don't use any maltodextrin. Our monk fruit is 100% ground monk fruit, and it's organic. And with my vegan line, I'm so excited to have launched this and to have it out into the world. It's a regenerative bean from South America called the chocho bean. And the chocho bean is the most superior plant-based protein powder you can get your hands on because not only is it a complete protein, but the process is made with heat and water only. They're crushed and soaked, and what that end product results in is an anti-nutrient-free protein powder. So you're not gonna have any lectins, phytates, or oxalates in your protein powder. Makes it super easy to digest, and it's really, really delicious and robust in cooking as well. So I love it if I want a thicker smoothie or a smoothie bowl, and I also love it in my baked goods, from my cookies to my muffins, pancakes and breads. It's the perfect protein addition. So if you wanna give either of these proteins a try or you've already been purchasing these proteins and wanna take advantage of this special deal, the code PODCAST10 is gonna get you $10 off for being a listener here at the Be Well by Kelly podcast. So head to kellylevesque.com or bewellbykelly.com Put the protein you'd like to purchase in your cart and use the code PODCAST10 for $10 off. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Forager Project. It's a family-owned and operated company. Forager Project crafts 100% organic, dairy-free yogurts, kefirs, milks, and sour cream using their hero ingredient, organic cashews, which makes the creamiest, most delicious base for all its products. Only for our podcast listeners, Forager is offering a limited time coupon for a free cup of yogurt at www.foragerproject.com forward slash cultivate health. And while you're there, check out hundreds of delicious, easy to make dairy-free recipes. In the Levesque house, we are loving their cashew sour cream. We drizzled it on tacos last week and Bash was super into it. Poor kid has never tried sour cream with that dairy allergy. And we are so thankful for Forager for sponsoring today's podcast and for offering up that tang we all love so much. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. I am so excited to have Doug Bopes on the show today. He's formerly incarcerated and addicted to drugs. Doug turned his life around in prison. Discovering fitness while in prison changed his life. 
and he now uses his platform as a trainer to help others. Doug is now an author, a speaker, a podcaster, a personal trainer, inspiring others to elevate their lives through fitness. And I am so excited to have Doug on the show. I was a guest on his podcast earlier this year. And I just think it's amazing what you've been able to do with mindset and how you've taken maybe the the hardest times in your life and found the silver linings to change and inspire others. So thanks for being here. Kelly, thanks for having me. And I, I got to tell you, your episode on my show was incredible. The the feedback from it, from people, was, was, was really good. The way you simplify nutrition and healthy living, I think is something that people can really get behind with so much noise out there. I think your approach to it, I mean, and I've been a trainer for almost a decade, is one of the easiest ones that I've come across. Hey, you know what? Uh, I'm just looking for people to be able to stick to something. So yeah. make it easy, a little bit easier to understand and a little be- bit easier to execute. And I feel like that that always really helps. Um, but this isn't about me. This is about you. So can you tell me a little bit about finding health and fitness while being incarcerated? And, and let's actually back it up. What happened? How did you find yourself behind bars? It's a loaded question. So it's interesting as I, I think about it now, I host a podcast called The Adversity Advantage, where I help people get through hard times and give them the tools and tactics needed to respond to these situations in a way that won't make it worse. And growing up, I used adversity to my disadvantage completely. And as I look back, there were a few things that I think led to my incarceration. Number one was massive insecurities. I was the kid whose parents got divorced when I was five, back when a time when divorce wasn't common. You know, this is back in the early 90s. I don't know exactly what the divorce rate was back then. I didn't pay attention to it like it's like now, but now it's, you know, upwards of 50%, maybe a little bit higher. So it's pretty common. I was bullied in school, I was picked on a lot. I was never good in sports, even though I love them. I was always the kid who watched ESPN. I was always the kid who tried to play sports, but I never made like the travel teams or anything like that. I never had any luck with girls. So I was watching my friends have girlfriends. I was watching my friends take girls to the dances. And I was always the guy that tried to go after girls, but they just weren't interested in me. And then I started to gain weight at a really young age. So I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old. I started to get like a little bit of a belly. And started wearing husky pants. And I started to really ask myself some some deeper questions like, what's wrong with me? Why am I gaining weight when my friends aren't? Why am I not fitting in the clothes that my friends would? Why am I not good at sport? Like all these things. And I just created this image of who I was that I was this, there was something wrong with me. And I was afraid to be who I was. I, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And it wasn't like I could say, I couldn't reach out and say, Hey, why am I not having, why don't I have a girlfriend? I couldn't go to my friends and be like, Hey, why don't I have a girlfriend? It's embarrassing, right? Or I couldn't go to my parents and be like, you know, I'm really depressed because I'm not making the teams. It just wasn't, it wasn't something you did. And I was always looking for a way to escape subconsciously. And the first opportunity I got to escape was when I was 14 years old and I got offered a hit off of a marijuana pipe. And it's interesting as because as you alluded to a moment ago that I was incarcerated, I never thought in a million years that when I took that first hit that I would end up in jail as a result of making poor decisions. Nobody does. It's not as easy as that. If, if you told somebody that started smoking pot that you're automatically going to go to jail if you continue to make these choices, nine times out of 10, they probably wouldn't take that first hit. They would do whatever they possibly could to deal with whatever was going on inside of them to make sure that they wouldn't get that result. 
So for me, I, I was just like, oh, I'm doing the, the cool thing. I'm trying to fit in. And I took that first hit, Kelly. And I felt like this monkey come off my back. All, the, all my worries were gone. All my fears were gone. All my insecurities. I didn't have to worry about whether I was ever going to find love. I didn't have to worry about you know, what my relationship was going to be like with my family. I didn't have to worry about if I was going to find success. I didn't have to worry about if I was going to ever lose that, that weight that I had gained when I was young. And what ended up happening is I became addicted to that, that feeling. And I began to smoke every day just because I had built up a habit, started selling a little bit on the side to support that habit. And it, what ended up happening as a result of that is it created a strain in the relationship with my family, as you can imagine. And my mom ended up kicking me out of her house on my 16th birthday because she busted me with a little bit of pot and sent me to my dad's house to live full time. And my dad and I always had a strained relationship growing up. So to me, it was a huge slap in the face, even though looking back now, she did the best that she could. And I, it's not like she purposely went to, to, to hurt me, but it definitely created some more insecurities in me. Ended up changing schools the very next day, went up to a rural high school to live with my dad, thinking that it would uh, force me to change my friends, force me to change my behaviors. And all it did was just gave me more of a reason to use more drugs. Kept up on the, kept on the same path, was smoking more and more. Barely graduated high school. And after I graduated high school, I ended up turning to, to cocaine because the pot couldn't do it for me anymore. I could only get so high off of the pot that I had to turn to something else and started snorting like a line of Coke. That turned into me snorting upwards of an eight ball of Coke a day. And then to support that habit, I began to sell drugs, to sell pot as like a job because it was easier to make money selling pot than it was to... Uh, works and make five, six, seven, eight dollars an hour, whatever it was back then. And the problem became that cocaine made me really anxious. And I was already a kid who clearly struggled with anxiety and worry and fear. So me doing an eight ball of coke a day and my anxiety went about as well together as you telling somebody to lose weight and they're eating pizza every day. It just doesn't work. And what really ended up bringing me to my knees was painkillers. Because I developed all these insecurities and anxieties on top of the ones I had already had from my drug use that somebody offered me a five milligram Percocet. And as soon as I took that five milligram Percocet, it felt that, I felt that same monkey come off my back that I did with the pot. And I didn't... When I, and I want to remind people, I know that when I, was, when I was taking it, I didn't realize how addictive painkillers were because when I took the five milligram Percocet, I was like, oh... It's not that bad. I'm not doing heroin. It's, you know, they're prescribed to people. So it's not that bad. But I knew I wasn't putting kale in my system. Mm. So these things were so addictive that the five milligrams turned into doing 10 milligrams a day, 20 milligrams a day, 40, all the way up until I was doing three, 400 milligrams a day, like spending a few hundred hours every single day just to support my habit. And I was also, like I said, selling a bunch of pot. So I was selling like $10,000 worth of pot a week to support my drug habit, make a little bit of money, which was all going up my nose, spending money at the strip clubs, unhealthy foods, that sort of thing. And Cinco de Mayo 2008, I was riding around to make a drug deal with a few of my friends. And a cop was, was running radar and I had a busted headlight and I had a half a pound of pot in my trunk, $2,000 in cash. And I flashed my high beams at the police officer, thinking that would give him a reason not to pull me over because he could, he could tell that my headlight wasn't busted. But really, he gave, me, it gave him a clear-cut reason to pull me over. 
pulls me over, ends up, you know, suspecting suspicious activity in the car and ends up like poking his flashlight around a little bit. As you can imagine, my heart's like in the pit of my stomach, nervous. Like I just knew, I just had a gut feeling. This is it. Finds an open container of beer that my buddy had in the back seat, pulls me out of the car, asks me to search it. And I told him yes. And subconsciously, I think I wanted to get caught, which is the interesting thing because that's like rule number one when you're selling drugs. There's a few. Well, one, you don't ride with a bunch of drugs in your car when you're going to make a deal. Two, you don't tell the cop he can search your car when you know you have stuff in the car. Pulls me out of the car, searches it, finds the half a pound of pot, the money, puts me in handcuffs, and I'm in the back of his back of his car. And in that moment, I don't know if anybody's listening to this, or maybe there's a mom or whatever. When you when you make it when you hit a point like that in your life, you think about how did I get here? How did a kid who just wanted to be loved, how did a kid who wanted to be successful, how did this sweet kid end up in this car? And as I look back, it was just stacking these bad choices one after the other. And everything kind of came to a head as my life was flashing before me. And then any dreams that I even remotely had were shattered, gone, all that sort of thing. Taken to jail, I'm charged with a felony, intent to distribute marijuana, the possession with intent to distribute marijuana, and end up going to court. Uh, a few months later. And meanwhile, I still have this horrific opiate habit. I didn't stop. And this is September of 2008. And the judge um, finds me guilty and sentences me to five years, suspends everything but 90 days, meaning that if I messed up again, like if I got another charge or if I violated my probation, I could potentially go back and serve the full five years. Five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. But he looked at me and he's like, Doug, if you complete everything without messing up, I'll take the felony conviction off your record. He's like, you're young, you're 20 years old. He's like, this is going to haunt you the rest of your life. So I'm going to do you a favor. And in that moment, I was like, well, it didn't really matter. I didn't think I was going to live to see 25. I'd already buried several of my friends to this point. I had already proven to myself that I couldn't keep a job, couldn't keep, a rela- couldn't keep any kind of relationship, including with myself. So I was like, yeah, whatever. I didn't think anything of it. And ended up reporting to jail a few weeks later, ironically, a week after my 21st birthday. And what ended up becoming my biggest setback, which was going to jail, ended up becoming my biggest blessing in the end. So that's how I got to jail. I mean, I, in a short, in the nut of it, wow. the short of it. Yeah. I have like major body chills. Like I have to say, as a mom of two boys and yeah. just as a mom in general, um, and being so newly postpartum and thinking about, these innocent little children and what they need. And to think that you felt insecure in your body and insecure with your friends and with girls. And when it came to sports and that you just needed like a, a huge hug and support to know that like you were loved, whether you, whether you were good at sports or if the girls loved you or not, like that really hits home for me because it's our responsibility as parents to show that love is not conditional. And that it's there for our children no matter what. And I do, I do think that, you know, thinking back in the 90s and the 80s, and you know, I don't think that the parents were equipped with the same kind of, you know, parenting books and understanding of like how and what we need as children. But I I am so glad that I'm so glad that what was like the worst moment in your life as a young adolescent turned into such a blessing and what you're giving back to the world today is, you know, I'm sure there are parents listening that are thinking about, you know, how they're, how they love their children, how they show up for their children. And, um, 
And it's just, you know, it's scary. Like drugs are scary. It's something that people think, oh, it's not going to be me. Just one hit here, one hit there. I don't have a problem, but um, it's amazing the biochemistry that can happen in the brain and how addiction works. And you just, you know, it is, it's something to be aware of, I think for sure. So let's talk about how you found your new love and your new addiction, yeah. which is health and fitness and why you're here and what you're doing today. So, so you, you go to jail, you're, yeah. you're behind bars. How, how do you find fitness and health? Another crazy story. And then first, you know, I, I just wanted to say, like, as I look back growing up and what I would have needed, I don't know what I would have needed, but you know, the, the love part was definitely important. What about what I always tell my mom, you know, it's funny. My, she's like, is there anything you wish I would have done differently? And I said, yeah, I mean, I wish you would have asked me why I was doing drugs. Not the fact that I was, because I believe drug addiction is a symptom of something inside. Like people are struggling and using that. I kind of as a, a aid to, to deal with some wounds. Right. And it's hard because as a male, you know, and this is just reality. I mean, to me, I thought to be successful as a guy, you had to be dating a hot girl. You had to be great at sports. You had to be doing all these things, which I was the polar opposite of. So as somebody who already had insecurities inside of me with my own stuff and my inability to deal with my emotions, you stack being rejected by girls in a, in a time where I was already so low that just kept you know put, putting my face in the mud even further. Wait, I'm going to stop you because that's yes. really important. Okay. What yeah, you yeah. asked your mom to do was to to sh- to ask you questions, to go right. deeper, to get emotional with you, to uncover those layers that maybe made her uncomfortable. And th- I think that's that's where the rubber meets the road. It's like it's uncomfortable to talk about our feelings, so you're masking them and treating them with drugs. She maybe didn't have the capability to do that at that time and that never taught you how to do that either, which is ask for help or talk about feelings. And I know that that is something that our generation is really, really taking so seriously when it comes to our kids is like, how do we get them to open up? How do we show that vulnerability and emotions are 100% acceptable and loved anyways, you know? Well, I think think there's two opposite sides of the spectrum that I think happen when it comes to these things. One is you don't say anything. Yeah. Right. And that causes problems. Like the parent doesn't say anything. And then the other side is the parent just comes down at him like a hammer on a nail. And that just kind of, when you're in a position, when you're feeling so low and ashamed of yourself, like hammering that nail further into the ground just makes it so much worse. Shameful. Yeah. Shame. Oh, yeah. And, and not that, and I also want to make sure I differentiate, not that I, that a parent should agree with their kid making these choices. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying your approach is every delivery is everything in life. I don't care if you're in a relationship, we're talking about like a, rela- a romantic relationship or a parent child relationship, delivery and approach is everything. Mm-hmm. So, what I try to tell parents is a few things try to come alongside of them, right? Try to g- help guide them in a way, love them from love them no matter what, like where they're at, show them love. And it doesn't mean financially, like just throw them money. I mean, really tell them that you're there for them, ask them questions, yeah. offer support emotional support in whatever way you can. And then destigmatize what you're going through because I think a lot of parents become embarrassed and ashamed themselves, especially if 
they have raised their kids in a pretty good environment. They're like, how could this happen to Johnny? How could this happen to Sue? Like they went to this school, they went to that school that we've gone on these trips. How did this happen? Life happens and it's going to happen. I mean, chances are, if you're listening to this, like, I don't know what the exact percentages are, but somebody listening to this is going to have a child who struggles with addiction. It's just, just the way it is. It's unfortunate. Right. So just when it happens, accept it, accept that it, you know, probably wasn't your fault. In some way, something happened. I mean, not to say that, you know, parents don't mistreat their kids doesn't lead that, but I'm just talking about the general context of life. Right. And, and don't be afraid to, to raise your hand and ask for help and talk to your friends and say, Hey, listen, like my kid is struggling with this. I really need your support right now. From an outside perspective, like you have any advice, like lean on other people. Because what I always say, would you rather be raising your hand and telling your friends that you're you need some help because your child's struggling, or do you want to be telling your friends that they died? Like, which do you want? Right. Because I think part of it is the shame, Kelly. Like, I think parents we do we have the ego, and they're embarrassed. They're like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I don't want to admit that my kid has a problem because it's a reflection on me. And that's why I say it's probably in some capacity not your fault. You didn't put the drug inside of them, right? Right. But I think it is your responsibility to handle it in a way that's not shameful, that's loving, walking alongside of them. And I always tell parents to make sure they're taking care of their own health through this because it's traumatic. Mm -hmm. It's stressful. Mm -hmm. It's going to cause a lot of anxiety, grief, depression. So make sure that you're taking care of yourself so that you can be that parent that your, your kid needs during that time. Yeah. You know what I absolutely love for parents listening, the the whole brain child and everything that, you know, that whole that whole series of books it is exactly what you're saying. It's like, I love you so much, no matter what. I see that you're in pain. I see that you're struggling. Why don't you tell me about why you're struggling? But here's the hard line. Drugs are still not okay in our family. I still don't want you doing them. That's not, that's not what we're supposed to do. You know, you can still have hard lines and still be loving at the same yeah. time. Yeah, and that and was one of the, yeah. And growing up, I remember I didn't. Re- I wasn't a golden child. Like I was, I'll admit, like I was the kid you didn't want your daughter to date. I was the kid you didn't <laughs> want your son to hang out with. No, I'm, I'm being serious, and I never thought I'd be honestly having a conversation with you in this capacity about this. I didn't. Yeah. And when my mom kicked me out, I was so emotional, and it was like every. It was like all my emotions and all of my resentments and anger just exploded. I remember sna- I flipped out and yelling, screaming, I ran away. And I think in that moment, I just wanted my, I just wanted a hug and just be like, you know what? I'm not leaving your side. And, you know, she kicked me out and that was, I think she did the best she could in that situation. But I think it's interesting now as drugs have become less, like drug addictions become quote unquote less stigmatized and more people are talking about it because it's now happening to so many people that I was able to say, and I'm able to say to parents, like, Every, we all deal with stuff in unhealthy ways sometimes. I mean, some of us, it's drugs. Some of us, it's shopping. Some of us, it's vanity on social media. Some of us, it's sex. Some of us, it's anger, drama. But look at the... Re- yeah, food. Look at why people are doing it. Because you have to address the wound. Because even if you take the drugs away and someone stops using drugs, they're going to find ways to self-medicate in other capacities if they don't address the, the why. So for me, I was clearly insecure. I was hanging around the wrong crowd. Uh, I felt ashamed of who I was. I had a lot of unanswered questions. I was told that I looked like I had Down syndrome when I was in early high school. And my self-image of myself had been completely hijacked by 
what people had said of me. What and then I started to believe all of that and create this narrative of who I was. And I just didn't even feel worthy of love. I didn't feel worthy of success. And I didn't even feel worthy to be myself as a human being. Wow. So I checked out. I did whatever I could to check out. And that's yeah. what drugs did for me. That makes sense. It makes sense. I'm just, I'm so sorry you felt that way at such a young age. I just can only imagine, I think only really strong people who have kind of a wake up call moment like you did can start to address and and kind of like gather the tools to work through all of that trauma as a child. So so let's get to let's get to how you found fitness yeah. and and health and if you remember those like first few like moments or times or days when you were behind bars and and what it felt oh, yeah. like. Yeah, I remember so you would think you know as strained as my relationship was with my family you would think the last moments would be spent with my family, like saying goodbye, you know, just hugging them, eating a meal or something. My last moments were spent getting high. The last, the very last thing I did, and I was almost late to reporting the jail. And if you're late, it's considered like escape because you're supposed to be there to set time. And if you're not, they're considering you like, uh, well, you're on the run, I guess. Right. So the last thing I did was snort 700 or several hundred milligrams of Oxycontin before I was like, you know what? Bon voyage. This is it. I'm going to jail. Right. End up giving a quick goodbye to my parents. And then I walked through the gates. And it's what's interesting to me is when I walked to the gates, I was crying because I didn't want to go. And when I left, I cried because I didn't want to leave, which I'll explain why in a moment. And as I walk into the detention center, all these fears I had, all those things you would hear about, about jail that you would worry about if you had never been in there were going through me like crazy. Because I was always the kid who never wanted to fight. I was always the kid who ran from my problems. I was always the kid who had massive anxiety. So I was like the perfect candidate to get bullied in there. I just was. Because I was like, if I got bullied in high school, I mean, sweet, I'm in, or shoot, I'm in jail. I'm definitely going to get bullied. I'm right. definitely going to be the guy that gets picked on. And... Well, the first thing I had to deal with was my was not just going to jail, but detox. So I had detox cold turkey off opiates, which for anybody listening who's not familiar with it, it's like having the worst case of the flu. All the symptoms that go with it, um, you know, uncontrollable bowel movements, nausea, vomiting, sleepless nights. But the worst was the feeling of trying to crawl out of your own skin. You really feel like a person inside of you is trying to leave you. And as I look back, it was the old me trying to get out of me. I felt like I really was reborn in a weird way. And my soon-to-be cellmate was sitting there at the Scrabble table. They were playing Scrabble. So in, in jail, what you do is you play things like Scrabble, chess, pinochle, spades, and then people exercise, there's TV on. And he's sitting there playing Scrabble and he's like, what are you doing here? And I just remember like kind of my shoulders rounded forward and um, very quietly telling him why I was there. And he's like, okay, okay. And he's like, you're going to start working out with me when you get done your detox. And I was like, what? I was like, no way, dude. Because at the model, I could, or at the time, I could have been a model for Pillsbury. Like, There's no way you, <laughs> I was going to get down and work out in front of all these guys. There's no freaking way. And I remember that night, he was like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club is the way I kind of describe him. He was doing thousands of push-ups, all these pull-ups running. I was like, who is this guy? This guy's a freak. <laughs> and we were in our cell. I can't remember if it was that night or the night after. And we were talking more about my story. And he was just like, you know, why are you here? Like what happened? And I started blaming my parents. I said, you know, my parents got divorced. I started saying that girls rejected me. And I started saying that 
was bullied and this and that. I was fired from these jobs. And I guess the G-rated version is he just said to me, quit being a wuss, man. And it was not what I wanted to hear, but it was exactly what I needed to hear. I always say a good coach will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And for me, it felt different coming from him, even though I'm sure plenty of people throughout my life told me not to use drugs, told me to stop selling drugs, but he had no skin in the game. It was like this unconditional love that I felt from him. And I was just like, what do you mean? He's like, you got yourself here, man. He's like, there's plenty of people that go have gone through what you went through and they didn't end up in jail. He's like, it's up to you. He's like, if you want your life to get better, you have to make the the choices and decide to change. No one's going to do it for you. He's like, so you can be a man and look yourself in the mirror and say, all right, you're here. What are you going to do about it? Make the right choices to move forward. Or you can be a wuss and go cry in the corner, be pessimistic and say, what was me? He's like, most people will do that. He's like, what do you want to do? And just like many people, when they, when they hear that, I was like so angry at first, but then I, I thought to myself, I was like, man, I think he's really right. Like, like my logical mind was starting to, to go a little bit because the drugs had been out of my system. I'm like, all right, I've been blaming everybody for my problems until this point, And it's gotten me in jail, a convicted felon. I've had 20 jobs, you know, torn relationships, drug addiction, all these things. So there's got to be something for this because I had played the victim most of my life. I had felt sorry for myself for everything I went through. Not that I wasn't a quote unquote victim of bad circumstances because I was, but the way I chose to respond, I continued to victimize myself over and over again and ended up like turning to drugs as a way to escape the, the victimization that I put myself through. And so I remember that night being like, Hey man, I think I'm finally ready to give this exercise thing a try. Cause he'd been nudging me and nudging me and nudging me. And after me seeing him, I was like, he's got what I want. He's ripped. He's jacked. He's like this bad dude. And I remember getting down to a, and mind you, I'm in front of a bunch of grown men in this common area of jail. Right. So the kid who was hyper insecure was afraid to always, you know, ask a girl out or afraid to, to fight or do these things that required self-confidence. Right. I was getting down to do a push-up and collapsed. And I remember looking at him like, why can't I do a push-up? And he just said, man, he's like, you're fat. And I remember I hated that word. And I, I don't think it's like always the best word for people to use, you know, right? At all. But for me, it, 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 it lit a fire in me for some reason because I hated that word. I was called that my whole life. And I think in that, in that moment, it felt... We say, you say fat is fuel. And for me, I felt like, wow, this is fuel for me. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I am. And I need to do something about it. So I remember getting down to doing to my knees and trying to do a pushup. Couldn't do it. I was just like, man, he's like, dude, you got no core strength. He's like, look at you. He's like, you can't even hold yourself up. And I was like, God, what has gotten into me? Like, what is wrong with what happened to me? And I would, he was like, all right, just go walk up and down the stairs and like, take a break. Like walk up and down the stairs and I'm huffing and puffing. So I was smoking like a pack and a half of cigarettes at the time too. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to train you in here every single day. He was like, I'm going to, we're going to set some goals. He's like, but you got to show up. You got to follow this little food plan I give you. And he's like, I don't, you got to just keep going. Don't quit. I'm like, okay. And we set a goal to do 10 push-ups and run a mile or something by the time I left my 90 day sentence. And with his motivation, encouragement, inspiration, I was able to do it. One push-up led to two, led to three, led to four and so on and so forth. And I was able to do a set of 10 push-ups, and then I was able to run a mile and what we would do is every night I would just focus on running a little bit more. So we would have a deck of cards and there, were, there was like a, like a way you could kind of run a lap inside jail. And every time you would run a lap, you'd put a card over 
you switch a card from your left hand to your right hand to count the laps. And each night I would work on just switching like a few more cards over to my the next hand. So I slowly built stamina. And a light bulb went off in my head that I never had before. I finally had this sense of self-confidence. I was walking with my chest up and not my shoulders rounded. I felt that I could talk to myself in a compelling way. Instead of telling myself that I was a piece of junk, I said, you know what? You are strong. You are amazing. And I just changed the way I talk to myself because I think what happens, Kelly, is it's not the way that people talk to us that brings us down. It's the way that we talk to ourselves. And if we're walking around, you know, maybe we're with around other people one or two hours a day, but you're still with yourself the, the rest. And if you're sitting there saying, you're a piece of garbage, you suck, you're ugly, it's going to crush you. And I had done that my entire life. So I really practiced talking to myself in a compelling way, not just talking, but believing it. Believing that I was so strong and brave for having the courage to get down and do push-ups in front of a bunch of grown men that I was terrified of when I first walked into the doors. And people started cheering me on. Like it was weird. I had this crowd of people that were have watched me change that I walked in there like a zombie and left a totally free man. And I don't mean free just because I was out of jail. I meant free spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, because all the masks had ripped off, got ripped off of me when I went into jail. The mask of trying to fit in, the mask of trying to be somebody I wasn't on social media, the mask of drug addiction, the mask of shame, all these things were gone. And I had to really deal with my stuff in, a, in an authentic way. And I felt like I was going to beat drug addiction. I was like, you know what? I'm going to change my life. This guy has helped light this little torch inside of me that I didn't have. And it's starting to burn a little bit. I'm going to take it and I'm going to pour gasoline on it and light the world up. And to be honest, it took me having blind faith to, to get from that point to where I am now, because the odds were so stacked against me. The odds of people when they get out of jail and going back are very high. The, the odds of relapse are very high. I was a convicted felon, had all these jobs. My track record proved that I was a quote unquote failure. But I knew if I believed in that and I just focused on the failures and I focused on all the negative stuff in my life like I had done up until that point, I would continue down that same lane. But I knew if I at least you know shifted, instead of stepping to the left, I stepped to the right and focused on the things that I had overcome in jail and focused on that, it gave me a chance. Not a guarantee, but a chance. And I went all in on that. I had this self-confidence. I finally was had developed some discipline. Finally got comfortable being uncomfortable, which we all know is crucial for life. And when I when I left jail, I walked up to my cellmate crying. I was a mess when I left because I was so emotional that I had this unexpected angel come into my life. And I said, Hey man, how can I ever repay you like for this? Like I felt like I was like, what am I gonna do? Because people struggle when they leave because when they leave jail, they've had their life so regimented. It's like, all right, you get up, you eat. You have lunch, you have dinner, and then in between, you're playing games and, and cards, and you got maybe some Bible study here and there. And there's guards watching over you. You're supervised the whole time. So when you get out into the real world, like it's reality. And I remember him saying to me, he's like, don't mess up and pay it forward. Now, at that time, I hadn't read a page of a personal development book. I didn't know what paying it forward meant. I didn't know what being of service meant. I was just like, all right, man, I swear I'm never coming back here. <laughs> and he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place. So I never forget where I came from and got out, lost a bunch of weight, lost 50 pounds, and then ended up getting to a point fitness wise where I wanted to help other people use fitness to change their lives. 
So I ended up becoming a personal trainer in April of uh, 2011. So it's been almost 10 years. And I found my new high in helping people use fitness to achieve their goals, not just for the physical benefits, but the mental and emotional benefits. Because I could relate to people in a way that many couldn't. I could relate to the, the person feeling insecure about their weight. I could relate to the, the person who was struggling with their mental health. I could relate to the person that couldn't be around their friends because they felt insecure in their body. I could relate to all of that. So when people would look at me and say, you know what, I'm struggling. I want to lose 10 pounds. You know, I don't think you understand. You're fit. I'm like, no, I do understand. Let me tell you where I came from. Let me tell because they would say, How did you, how did you find fitness? And I would tell them, and I was very honest. And they're like, really? So people could relate to them. Like, I believe that true transformation can happen when somebody who's trying to get through the journey feels that you've walked in their shoes before. And I think sometimes in the personal development space and in the health and wellness space, we focus on the end goal in which we talk about sharing our story. We're sharing the smoothies, we're sharing the abs, we're sharing the money. But our clientele or our customers or the people we're trying to take along the journey are trying to like wonder, like, have you ever felt this way before? Have you ever felt stuck? Have you ever sat on the couch and not felt like moving? Have you ever looked in the mirror and said, I hate who I am? Have you ever had to like suck in your belly because you were so insecure to be around women that you didn't want them to know that you had like a belly? I've been through all of that. And, and so I was very fortunate to build a really successful personal training business and, and time flew by, stayed on a straight and narrow, and it was time for modification of my sentence. And it just so happened that one of my clients was a lawyer and we wrote to the judge for, for modification of my sentence. And he granted me my day in court and ended up taking the felony conviction off my record, giving me the PBJ. And I never realized how one's life can change in a matter of seconds from being shackled as a felon to now being a free man, being able to vote, being able to leave the country, being able to not check a box and all these things. And since that point, this was back in January of 2014, I've been on a, a mission to use my platform or really use to, to share my story. And then I guess I've built my platform through sharing my through sharing my story, wrote my first book from felony to fitness to free to inspire people to make the most of their second chance, turn negative into a positive and focus on how far they've come and not how far they have to go. That is key for anyone looking to change their lives. It's easy to focus on the things you don't have. It's easy to focus on the weight you haven't lost. It's easy to focus on the strength you haven't gained. But what have you already gained in the past? Like, what have you accomplished? Because we live in such a forward-thinking society, where we're always looking 10 years ahead, 15 years ahead, one year ahead, that we're not looking back. And not back in a negative way, like focusing on all the negative stuff in your past, but the things that you have gotten done. Because anytime you're going through a hard time in your life, lean in on the times you've gotten through hard times. It'll give you the confidence needed to get through whatever you're going through. I've been there. Right. And... And so after I wrote my first book, I was like, you know, I feel like God has put me on this earth for, kept me on this earth for a reason. Because I, I lost a bunch of my friends growing up. And, and so I've just really been passionate about sharing my story, I've written a couple other books along the way. I was voted as a fitness hero by the Baltimore Sun back in, I think it was 2015. Um, and then have, you know, shared my story on media outlets like the Today Show and in Men's Health and different podcasts and like impact theory and on rich Roll show. And now I'm here with you and I have my own podcast called the adversity advantage just to, to help and to share my story to people like you and people listening to this, to give, give people hope that they can get out of a dark time. It's not easy. Um, it's not going to be perfect, um, but dang, it's so worth it. 
Let's take a minute to talk about Beekeepers Naturals. This is one of my favorite companies and I'm kicking myself for not purchasing this product, investing in this company, and being a supporter a few years ago when I first heard of them. Um, But I really didn't understand the science behind bee products until I had Carly Stein, the founder of Beekeepers Naturals, on the podcast. So I definitely recommend going back and listening to that podcast if you're interested in learning more about the science of bee products. But Beekeepers Naturals puts out the cleanest bee products available from raw honey to bee pollen, propolis, and royal jelly. Propolis is something that Sebastian, Chris, and I all take daily because it's immune supporting and germ fighting and loaded with antioxidants to protect our bodies. Propolis is the bee's medicine and it's ours too. So we take it daily. If you guys are interested in trying Beekeepers Naturals, they have a 100% money back guarantee. And I definitely think it's a company that you too should also invest in to help your family stay well. It is a true testament looking back. And and I love what you said there, looking back for the positives, because I think so many of us, you know, we're looking too far forward and that gives us anxiety or we're looking in the rearview mirror and it makes us feel depressed about what we didn't get done or what mistakes we made. And instead of looking back for those positives and looking really like looking at the day-to-day things you did to make real changes in your life. You said that you you got out of jail and you continued on this fitness path and you lost 50 pounds. Like people have these big goals, like 50 pounds, 75 pounds, you know, that they want to shed not only emotionally and physically, but that there's a whole journey in between there where you made those positive decisions again and again and again for yourself. Um, so I'm curious, looking back, I think about this transition of of those tears coming down your face as you left um, yeah. jail and, and walking into your new life. Um, what did the day-to-day look like for you in those very first few days and weeks after getting out? And how did you... How did you continue on that positive momentum um, that you had really started in jail? So I think I think my codependency probably helped me a little bit because I was so codependent on my cellmate that I didn't want to let him down. And I felt that if I failed, that you know, he was gonna hate me forever. So I mean, I definitely had that to lean on. <laughs> and what really helped me was um my grandparents actually ended up taking me in. And they said, you can live here. We're not going to charge you rent. We're not going to charge you for food. We'll give you spending money. But you have to have skin in the game. You got to keep your room straight, <laughs> which was to me, seemed, seemed like a mountain. You know, Before I went to jail, it was like the biggest slob. Uh, you got to keep your room straight. You got to bring us receipts if we give you money. You have to have a job. You have to exercise. You have to take care of yourself. Like You have to prove to us that you're kind of continuing on the path and we'll support you along the way. And, you know, I was, I got kind of lucky, if you will. And, but I think it gave me this structure that I never really had. And it was structured in a loving way where they kind of gave me a little bit of freedom, but they just knew, like, listen, like if you bring us a receipt and it doesn't match up with what you said you were doing, you're out. And in those first few days, in those first few weeks, I just had to focus on that day. Like, I just knew that if I, because I mean, I looked at back when I was in jail, I said, okay, like, Every day I felt a little bit better. So every day I exercised, I ran, I ate okay. And slowly but surely I felt better day by day. And so I knew I had to keep that up. So every day I focused on, okay, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to run, and I'm going to eat well. And I'm going to stay away from dangerous substances. And that was just, that was my goal. That was it. Just doing those few things. 
And so slowly but surely, I built that up. And then like a few, like a few days turn into a few weeks, turn into a few months. And you look back and you're like, wow, I don't have these cravings anymore. I found new ways to manage my emotions because I think what happens, Kelly, is um, like your neurologically, your brain gets so used to creating behaviors that get attached to emotions. Meaning, you know, for me, it was like every time I was anxious or depressed or angry, I would go and do drugs. So my, my brain knew that as second nature. So it was almost like a instant knee jerk reaction. You're depressed, go get high. But now what had happened, because I still had these same feelings. I was still worried, like, well, what's going to happen to me in five years? Like, <laughs> is anybody going to like me or whatever? I still had these feelings, but how I managed them changed. It was like, all right, I can run now. And I can channel those negative feelings and that negative energy into something positive. And I started to build more self-confidence in myself, knowing that I didn't, I could stay healthy without being in jail, that I didn't need somebody on me 24-7 to push me to exercise. I was now doing it for me. And as I started to lose more weight, I started to develop a better self-image of who I was. And it wasn't because I started to look better. It was because I had finally done the things all that I had known I should be have been doing all along. Like subconsciously and even consciously, I knew I needed to lose weight. I knew I needed to exercise. I knew I needed to eat, but I knew eating like three pieces of pizza and a cheesesteak for lunch wasn't healthy. But I just had no confidence in my ability to do it. So once you start raising your self-esteem and your self-confidence in one area, what happens is you start to not settle for other things in your life that are negative. So I started changing my friends. I started saying, you know, I don't really align with people that are going out and partying all the time. Not that they're bad people. I just knew I didn't have anything in common with them anymore. So it became awkward. It's kind of like that awkward first date you go on where maybe you think they're going to be a good match and you sit there and you sit across from them and it's like, there's no conversation, like nothing to talk about. That's how it started to become with my friends. It was weird because I was like, wow, like five years ago, we were having these interesting dynamics. We did so much together. But I was like, wow, why is this weird? And what I realized is I just had nothing in common with them. There's no chemistry anymore because... I was more worried about how I was going to cook my chicken for the night or where I was going to exercise the next morning instead of going out or or doing whatever they were doing. And so I had to make a really tough decision to leave the friends of my past and develop relationships with friends for my future. And I think it's an important point for people to hear because everybody gets so caught up in the people that they've known for quite a while even if they're bringing them down and we have this sense of loyalty and connection to them and feel like we need to have them in our lives forever. And we just, you need to remember that people just like you have a choice in who you spend time with, they have a choice in whether they want to grow with you or not. And we have to keep that because who do you want? Like, here's the question I always say, who do you want to be? Do you want to be that person that's 40 years old looking back and be like, man, I wish I would have changed my friends and just done that hard thing and made a short-term sacrifice for a long-term gain because now here I am still bouncing from job to job. I'm still smoking cigarettes. I'm still doing drugs. I'm still making these bad choices and I'm living with a ton of regret. Or do you want to be that person that's 40 and saying, you know what? Like those first few months of changing my friends were hard. It was hard laying on the couch like I did with my grandparents, like watching the Food Network and watching Dancing with the Stars on a Friday and Saturday night. That was hard, having to deal with with Doug. And it was hard to wonder if I was going to ever find any new friends. That was really challenging for me. But it taught me a lot of lessons and wisdom about life. And I got through it. And now that same Doug, and I'm not 40 yet, but I'll be at 40, I'll be looking back and like, man, I'm so thankful that 
I was able to change my friends, make some tough decisions in the short term. So the long term, I could be more fulfilled and happy. And as a result of me surrounding myself with the right people and continuing to evolve, I've been able to do a lot of, of what I've been able to do. So it, that, that was a big thing was changing my friends. And then getting more passionate about food had really helped me too, because I never understood what quote unquote eating healthy meant. I mean, I knew what it was, but I didn't know how it really affected your mental health. I just thought it was a physical health thing. And then I started to read different health magazines and different books and researching on nutrition and how to to build muscle and how to eat for sustainability. And it, it just turned into a new passion of mine. And that led up to me wanting to become a trainer, even though I had no, I had no formal education and training. I just knew that I wanted to help people and I wanted to give back and, and pass the torch. Like I didn't even know, I had no idea what was going to happen in my training career. I just went in and was like, I want to do this for fun. I would do it for free. And then I think it's just no coincidence that I had so much success because I was hyper aligned with my soul and everything. I love that so much. You, you've highlighted a couple of things that I think are really important when it comes to leveling up. Yeah. And growing and changing, and the friends piece is really big. Yeah. I have had clients in the past who, you know, it might not be drugs, but it may be like in their early twenties, and all their friends are going to the clubs, and they're having vodka soda on top of vodka soda, and waking up feeling horrible, and they don't align with that life. Um, and it's scary to think like I'll be lonely. I won't be, you know, what will they think of me? And and really creating those new relationships with people who are leading a healthier life or leveling up or people that you can aspire to be. I mean, that's how we all grow. Where were your first, where were the first relationships built for you after kind of deciding that your your original friend group, the OGs, were yeah. maybe a little too party uh focused? Well, I, I want to kind of piggyback off something you said just really quick. I think it's better to be lonely and sitting by yourself to to feel feel lonely when you're around your friends or around people, oh. because now there's some sen- an additional. There's, there's no there's room for growth when you're lonely by yourself. You can really look at your feelings, look at your emotions, look at what you're doing, and you can build off of that. But if you're just caught up in being codependent or trying to fit in and being an imposter, right? You talk about imposter. People talk about imposter syndrome all the time, and I just posted something like. The easiest way to become an imposter is to be trying to fit in with everyone else instead of developing your own identity, right? So, and when you're trying to fit in with everybody else and you're feeling the sense of lonely and unfulfillment because you know you shouldn't be hanging around these people and it's bringing your life down, it's hard to work off of that because you're caught up in that toxic cycle. And until you get out of that and you're able to sit at home or sit by yourself and say, these are my values, these are my beliefs, these are the people I want to surround myself with. And I'm not sacrificing any of that right now to to hang out with people that I don't align with. When you make those decisions, it becomes a lot easier to take a step forward. So for me, what helped me tremendously was getting in the gym. I think when anyone is trying to meet new people, new healthy people, new health with who have healthy uh, healthy lifestyle and goals and that sort of thing, just go to the gym. Because most people in there are in there to better themselves. Most people in there are looking to bet, to change their life, lose some, whether it's lose some weight, gain some muscle. People t- tend to be happier in the gym because they're doing things that they that make them feel good about themselves. And so I started to develop a few friends in the gym. And then when I got my job as a trainer, I remember my buddy, a buddy who was one of my best friends to this day, uh, this guy Billy. 
I saw him, he had a, built a nice book of business at the, the gym. And it's like, wow, his clients seem to like him. He seems happy. He just seemed like a cool dude. I wanted to be like him. Not, not like him, like I wanted to be his exact person, but I yeah. wanted to, I wanted to be able to grow a business similar to what he had. I wanted raving fans. I looked like he was having fun. You know, he kept himself fit along the way. I just was like, you know, I want to be like that. Right. And I had learned about the power of mentors just when I was in jail, I guess subconsciously, right? I didn't think it was going to be that much that big that big of a deal to me. And I remember going up to him, like, hey man, I'd love to to pick your brain on training and learn how to build a business. And um and he kind of gave me a lot of advice that I think he had, that I'm sure he'd given to other people through the years. But I actually I listened to it, took it, and ran with it. And uh, I think he felt a sense of peace and connection with that because I was kind of like his uh, his little protege, my little brother. Yeah. yeah, and we became good friends. And then I just built other relationships with different people in the fitness community, and then. Um, I got offered to go to a mentorship with this guy, Todd Durkin, who um, was a trainer out in San Diego, who uh, has ended up becoming a, was a coach and mentor of mine for a while. And I remember going to this mentorship thinking, uh, this is back, gosh, we were in San Diego this is in the early 2010s. I want to say 2011, 2012. I can't remember the exact year. But I remember going out there and thinking we were going to learn uh, how to do a better lunge. Or how to make you know a better meal, whatever it was, like the the fitness wise. But it was really we talked about life goals, like how do you want to be remembered when you when you end your life when your life ends, or what's your goals five years from now, or what do your daily habits look like? All these things. And I was like 21, 22, 23. I forget. I was early twenties. I was young and I was so scared because it was just stuff I had never thought about in my life. And I knew I still Kelly had this potential deep down that was stuck with my story. And I remember telling my story of how I got into fitness. Like, you need to write a book. I was like, nah, no way. Like, I barely graduated graduated high school. And because of attending that event and getting involved in his program, it pushed me to write my first book. Gave me the belief in myself and these people around me that helped elevate me. And from that moment on, I was like, I need to have people that are like this in my life. People that are pushing me to be to be better. Because what would happen was I would come home. And then it would be like normal. It'd be like a buzzkill. I was like, man, these people aren't as happy. They're not as energetic. Like, where are the people setting goals? Where are the people doing these things? And so that's that's kept me on track to really making sure that I'm around people that continue to elevate me and not being the smartest person in the room. Because I was always the guy that felt insecure to hop into these rooms where people were smarter than me. I mean, I have conversations with people on my show that are way smarter than me. That like, sometimes I'm like researching them. I'm like, gosh. I'm like my my brain is like mush just trying to think about all the stuff I have to try to learn and remember, but it challenges me to be a better person because when you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, you become smarter as a result because you start to think like them or you start to act like them or they start to rub off on you in a way, and then you develop a sense of humility, which is crucial for self confidence and knowing that you don't know everything and that it's okay to ask for help, right? And I think in life sometimes we're afraid to raise our hands and call a friend or call a coach or whoever and say, you know what? I'm really struggling right now with my mental health. I'm struggling with my fitness. I'm struggling as a parent. I'm struggling as a kid. Help me. And I cannot encourage people enough that if they are struggling with anything and they feel the need to reach out and ask for help, I mean, just do it. You won't regret it. Oh, there's there have been so many juicy nuggets. <laughs> even just in like the last 45 minutes. Yeah. 
But I think something that really stands out to me, Doug, um, which I love so much and hope to emulate and I hope comes across and I hope my children are this way is that how humble you are and how honest you are. Because in a day, in today's day and age, when you think about the internet and Instagram and social media, it's, it's like the highlight reel. It's the shiny resume. It's, it's not admitting where we started and how we grew. And I think that's a way more powerful story than like, I've always just had it together. It's always just worked out for me. And I'm, you know, I, I did everything right. I, the, the adversity that you face and the honesty that you come with when you tell your story, it shows that you, you know, that you're a real human who has real trials and tribulations and that that kind of rebound and that kind of growth is attainable by anyone who, who wants it. And if they need to ask for help, whether that's a coach, a mentor, a cellmate, you name it, like, Find someone that can help mentor you and support you to get where you want to go because it does. It takes the work. It takes those. It takes those first few days after you leave. In your case, after you left jail, to like keep it going, to keep working out. Um, and it sounds like your grandparents kind of held you accountable there too with those receipts, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think too. You know, in a world where everything's so scripted, there's filters. People are on there trying to one-up each other on social media and say, Oh, I live better than you. or I'm wealthier than you. I'm just like, you know, I want to just be me because I know at the end of the day, I had what I thought made me happy, which was doing drugs and selling drugs. I thought was going to get me happiness and check out from life. And it didn't eventually obviously caught up with me. And then I honestly hit a point, which I want to kind of go, go on where I thought that me being ripped and making good money and being clean from drugs was going to provide me true happiness. And eventually that caught up with me too. And it was probably five, six years ago, maybe seven years ago. I had thought I had it all together. I was as ripped as could be, had like, you know, five, six percent body fat, was eating well, was super strong, was clean. And I think I had just written my first book. And I remember just feeling empty still. I was like, why am I still unconfident? Why am I still unhappy? Why do I still have resentment about my past choices? And I didn't have any spirituality in me. And and when I share this, I mean, I'm a born again Christian. I don't want people to take it in a dogmatic way. I think the reason why this helped me so much is what's important. So growing up, I believed... I grew up old school Greek Orthodox. So my, my understanding of religion was if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. So I was like, I'm on the highway to hell. Like, screw God, <laughs> screw any kind of religion, doesn't matter. And I also was like, if God's about love, why am I addicted to drugs? Why am I being bullied? Why this? Why that? And what ended up happening was one of my mentors was like, you need to get some God in your life. You need to get some God in your life. This guy, Todd. And I was like, no way, man. I was like, there's, there's no way. Like, I'm on the highway to hell already. Right. And then one of my clients ended up being a pastor at this non-denominational church. He's like, man, you should come to church with me. I'll get you Chipotle after. I'm like, nah, man, I'm good. Like, I'm, going, <laughs> I'm going to hell for putting you through this workout. Like, I literally felt that's how I felt. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember just hitting this moment, Kelly, and I broke down because I just had thought that being ripped or chasing after girls or doing whatever was going to make me happy. And it did in the short term, but that comp gets empty really fast. And I remember calling this guy who, tra- who I trained and I said, Hey man, I think I'm ready to give this Jesus thing a try. And he, I, I, it was literally like, I just told him he won the lottery, his reaction, right? <laughs> As anybody who's listening, who knows like people who are in this, in the space, like, 
And I remember getting like, down. I and, gotcha, Doug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's so like, I remember, get, I remember getting down and, and getting on my knees and, and doing this prayer and acknowledging that you know Jesus died for me since all these things. And I felt that same monkey come off my back that I felt doing drugs. And I'll never forget that moment, walking out of that church and crying and telling my mom how sorry I was the first time. And I started to begin to, I started to realize that I, part of me really died in jail. It really did. I feel like I have somebody else's memories inside of me. And that old person died in jail and became, was made new when I left. And I didn't understand that that was really going on until that day. And I realized that I might not have been proud of my choices, but God was because he used my screw-ups to help other people become better. And that was, that's the big reason for me is knowing that, that everything happened for me and not to me. Because regardless, we all go through stuff and you can look at the situation. Again, everybody says, you know, this happens for you, not to you. And it's legitimate because if I had just said this is happening to me, 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 why me? Poor like, me. What is that going to do to my psyche? Right. It's going to make me feel sorry for myself. It's going to make me have resentment. It's going to make me not be able to move forward in life. It's going to keep me you know, shackled, right? But when I look at that, it happened for me. Now there's power. Now there's purpose. Now there's like, okay, I have these lessons and wisdom that I've not only been able to better myself with, I want to tell the world. Like, I want to tell the world that you can use adversity to your advantage. I want to tell the world that dark times can become light. I want to tell people that you can get through the storm. You just have to stand there and wait for the blessings. And sometimes our biggest blessings, the most unexpected things that are great that happen to us, come in our moments of darkest times. Because remember, it's just like when the sun goes down. In order for the sun to come up and there to be light, it has to get dark. And it's the same thing with life. Light will come. I always tell people, like faith to me is not religious. It's not dogmatic in any way. It's simply believing in the unseen. It's standing in that dark place, having no idea where you are, having no idea what's in front of you. You can't see anything. It's pitch black. But you keep, st- you keep taking one step forward, one small step, one foot in front of the other, and believing that if you just keep going, making the right choices, you will see light. Doesn't matter when, doesn't matter how, you just believe subconsciously that you're going to keep going and walking by faith. But what happens is people get fearful because they're impatient, or they end up saying, you know what, this is too scary, this is too uncomfortable, and they end up staying shackled there, stranded. Like they're just, they're stuck. And that's, that's where fear keeps them. Or even worse, it keeps them going back to their comfortable place and hanging out with old friends, going back to old bad decisions and doing bad things because um, their level of faith just isn't where it needs to be. So I just wanted to kind of make sure that I shared that as well. I, I love that so, so much. I keep saying I love that because I, <laughs> I just, I can't tell you how many times sitting down with a client and having vanity goals for a size gene or a a number on a scale is sort of, it's the gateway to get them to what it feels like to feel good about themselves, but it's never the end goal. It's always, it's always sort of this, this gate that opens up their eyes to, you know, I need to love myself more. I need to expect more from my partner. I want to be different. I want a different career. I want to do better. I want to give back. What is my purpose? And they end up asking these deeper questions. And What's so awesome is that you you've acknowledged that, and for anyone listening, like these these vanity goals are great, 
but they're not as fruitful and um, they don't, they're not as fulfilling as a life of purpose, a life of faith, and a life that gives back to their community. And Doug, you are doing just that. Like I, I have had full body chills at least three times on this <laughs> podcast because I didn't expect it to go this way. Um, you know, I knew that you had such a powerful voice and such a powerful story, but there are so many lessons along today's podcast from, you know, being honest, taking your adversity and and making it your advantage um, and making it your purpose. Not what doesn't happen to you, right? It happens for you. And yeah. And for anyone listening, if you're facing adversity right now, I know 2020 has been so hard and so difficult for so many people, but just know that there is something you can do with this story, with your story, whatever it is. And um, oh God, it's just been such a pleasure to have you on the show, Doug. And I'm, you know, <laughs> I resonate a little with the Chipotle for church because my dad used to be like, here <laughs> are the donuts and the 7-Eleven yeah, Slurpees. Yeah. And my sisters and I, I would sit there in our, you know, <laughs> at our... Catholic church and listen in, but it is something to have a community of people who have faith and, and to know, like, even in your darkest moments, when you feel like a failure, you feel shameful, you're embarrassed. It's not going your way that like, there's something bigger and better out there for you. And, and you have purpose. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. I I love, I honestly love talking to you. You're an amazing interviewer and great conversationalist. And I think you're right. Like you have to attach a deep beneath the surface meaning behind goals. It can't just be vanity metrics. It has to be something like the the fact that you're taking care of yourself or that you want to live longer. You want to be a better human being for your partner. You want to be a better parent uh, or you want to be able to move better when you're hiking or whatever it is, because let's face it, like something could happen. God forbid you get into a car accident and then what? Like, what do you have to fall back on if your whole identity is wrapped up in your body? Life can get dark really quick. But if you are able to lean in and say, you know what? I, I know I'm a strong human being. I know I exercise because I care about myself and I'm going to continue to do whatever I can on a daily basis despite my circumstances to show myself authentic love, compassion, and empathy and care throughout this. I'm going to become a better person as a result of it. And then I want, the last thing I want to leave your audience with is you have to attach a deep why to your goals before life attaches it for you. Because if you don't take care of yourself, like you, stuff's going to happen. We always wait to get diabetes to address how we eat. We always wait until the overdose to address our addictive behavior. We always wait until our marriage falls apart to address like toxic relationship patterns. Right. We always wait till things get worse and we're almost in a sick care society instead of a healthcare. We're in a very reactive society instead of being proactive. So get clear on what you want to do. If you're that person right now that's been wanting to lose the 20, 25 pounds, not to lose the weight, but because you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't like the way you look and you're depressed about your self esteem and how you feel, lean in on that. Like tell yourself every single day when you want to give up on yourself, I'm not quitting today because if I quit, I'm telling myself that I don't believe in myself. If I quit today, I'm telling myself I'm not worthy. If I quit today, I am quitting on the person that I want to be in the future. Like lean into that deep why now, like right now, before life attaches it for you. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, all the feels. Like I feel like I can go take on the world right now, Doug. (laughs) I'm like ready to go. 
<laughs> like who else can I have on the show like Doug? I feel so good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. No, it's it's awesome. That was great. I'm so stoked to share this episode. I I'm gonna just leave this talking part in because I am so I I just I think neat people need to be as authentic as you are. Like I think they need to tell their story in a unfiltered, transparent way because that's when everyone else learns that it's okay to be human and what can we make of it. So Doug, thank you so, so, so much for being here. Please tell everyone where they can follow along because they need your positive juju in their life. Yeah. So I guess before, like, I, I just want to say, like, I think at the end of the day, the reason I try to be as raw and real as I am, like, I don't sound like I prepared. I'm like, all right, I want to hit them on these points <laughs> is because like, at the end of the day, that's people will relate to you when they feel like you can relate to them, right? When they feel right. that you have some sort of connection to them. And if you come off all scripted or you're like very to the point, like with everything, it's hard to relate to somebody who might be listening to the podcast and they, maybe they feel insecure and they're like, Oh, like I could never do that. Or I could never do this. But when they hear someone who sounds maybe kind of like them, maybe they're stuttering a little bit or they're, they're sharing authentically and real, or they're like hitting some pain points. Like, wow, I get that person. So if you want to find out more about me, I guess the, the place I'm more active, the most active is on Instagram. I'm at Doug Bobst. And then my podcast is the Adversity Advantage podcast. And then I guess with Clubhouse, now you can find me on Clubhouse at Doug Bobst as well. So fun. I'll link Thank all you. I'll link everything in the show notes and we'll make sure your books are linked there and your yeah, yeah, yeah. stories and all of that good stuff. Doug, you're the best. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. This is awesome. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 